Well, good morning. It's Wednesday, halfway down with the week. My name is Leah Freichels. If we haven't met yet, I would love to meet you. I get to work with a lot of really great students setting up mentoring. If you're interested in getting a mentor, come find me and talk to me. I also have a sign-up outside of chapel today, and I'd love to talk to you. I have wonderful mentors available still. And we're also working with Campus Ministries, Men's and Women's Ministry, to have a fall retreat, November 4th through 6th. Yeah. Um, here's the deal. I need you guys to sign up by this Friday. And you can sign up right outside of chapel here or at lunch. You can talk to Patrick O'Dell if you have questions or come find me and hope you guys can make it. Also today, we have World Chat in the Fireside Room at 11.15. Everyone is welcome. Bring your lunch and... The theme is stories from the field. And so it's going to be faculty, staff, and students who went on missions trips this summer and are going to be sharing some of their experiences and life-changing things that happened there. So you won't want to miss that. On Monday, we had a wonderful opportunity to hear from Pastor Knold, and he shared about three different traditions um, as far as religion goes and three different kind of veins of thought and similarities and differences and so I'd like to take just a moment this morning just to pray for the lostness of this world. And it's something that we don't think about very often even being here in America or overseas because it seems very disconnected, but it's very real. And so if you would just bow your heads with me. Um, if God brings someone to your mind or a certain region to mind or a certain cult to mind, I would allow you to take the time to be praying for that and otherwise just pray with me. Father God, I just, I know that you hurt when people don't know you. And Father, we just lift up all those who are lost today, who are searching or unaware of how near that you are to them. And I pray that you would just send people who can love them and show them your love, Lord. We pray that you would be moving among the nations and that Satan would be just destroyed, Lord. And pray that these people would find hope in you and your power in their lives. And I pray that you would empower us to go and to, to share that with them, Lord. And so we lift up this time to you. We lift up um, what we're going to learn and whatever stirrings in our hearts or questions that it brings up. I just pray that you move here today, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please welcome with me, Pastor Knold. Hey, I do want to echo that, that we have to remember our adversary is not the people caught, ensnared, and enslaved in the various religions and cultures around the world. Would you please put that in your mind very clearly? They're not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. And he has them held captive. So we want to go to the captives and help rescue them with great compassion and great love. And if they resist along the way and, and, and want to fight us along the way, remember, they're not our enemy. They're the ones we're trying to help with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to have that in our mind. We need to get past this adversarial relationship with people of other faiths and realize that they are caught and snared by the devil. And we want to help them compassionately with great love. Um, before I jump in any further, 
I do want to mention, uh, Dr. Erickson said I should have done this on Monday, and I want to do it today for sure, that this winter I'm uh, planning, to, well, the school is planning on offering a course that I'll be teaching, Introduction to Islam, and it won't fit in everybody's major, but it'll fit in a lot of your majors, and I hope that you'll consider taking the course this winter term, uh, Introduction to Islam. We haven't offered it for quite a few years here at Crown, and so we're excited to offer that course, and I hope there's at least eight of you who will come, and then we can run the course. So that's my, my goal. So this is my shameless plug. No, I'm done. Okay, let's do the, um, the next slide. So I want to define some terms about, when we talk about world religions and cults and new religious movements, I want to define some terms. Now, the way I've given you these definitions on your handout and up here is what I'm, I'm kind of bowing to normal usage. I'm going to well, give my uh, correction, if I could, on normal usage. But I'll give you, first of all, normal usage. Normal usage would be something like this. A world religion is a system of beliefs and practices based on a written or oral tradition focusing on a supreme being or supreme goal, as in Buddhism's case, and is practiced by an identifiable group of people. You can see like Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Jain, uh, on and the list goes, uh, Shinto, Taoist, Confucius. There's many other world religions, and they fit in this general category of world religions. Second slide. The contemporary cult, and this is the term that's... Uh, uh, I don't prefer, but a contemporary cult is an identifiable group of people who claim to be part of a religion. Notice the claim. They claim to be part of a religion, but the people in that religion disagree with them. <laughs> the people who are kind of the leaders in that religion say, no, you're not really part of us. So like a Mormon might say they're part of the Christian church, but the rest of the Christian church says, no, actually, you're not part of us. And so there's a disagreement. And so they, they, a, a cult will be a group that claims to be part of a, a religion, but the religion itself, the establishment of that religion, uh, says, no, you're, not, you're actually observing practices that are uh, outside the bounds of our world religion. And so Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses would be Christian cults. I should mention this. Every religion has cults. We often just think about Christian cults. But Baha'is in the nation of Islam would be Islamic cults. Kabbalah would be a Jewish cult. Originally, Buddhism and Jainism would have been Hindu cults. They've become, over time, their own religious movements. And so cults are often uh, what we think of as aberrant forms of a religion. The third next one, next slide. A new religious movement, which is the preferred term among scholars today, and, and rightly, refers to an emerging religious movement which is unaffiliated with existing world religions. In other words, it just kind of comes up, um, not in isolation, that'd be ridiculous, but, but it comes up uh, not directly part of it, and this is important, doesn't claim to be part of another religion. Okay, so like Scientology, Wicca, and many others could be added here, that they don't claim to be part of an established world religion. Um, most religion scholars would prefer to not use the word cult because of its pejorative and sensationalistic terminology. I would be agreeing with that. And I'd prefer to just use the terms world religions and new religious movements. It's a lot friendlier and it's even more accurate, I think, in describing what we're talking about. And so that'd be my preference, but I just wanted to give you the way they're, they're often used in our uh, conversation. Next slide. Just a, a, a quick introduction to who starts a new religious movement. Um, it's usually a leader or a prophet who claims to have a special revelation, a special authority, an exclusive way, 
and who calls for, get this now, a legalistic and fully devoted following. They're really tenacious about it. They tend to isolate themselves and their followers from the rest of society. And the leader promotes uh, authenticators to kind of prove that they're worth following and that God has sent them. Uh, there's a model that's often used in religious studies. We call it the, it's called the Stark and Bainbridge model. Here's what it looks like. It starts, a new religious movement would start what we'll call a high-tension relationship with the surrounding culture. Okay, and so in the first generation, the very zealous uh, leader, the founder, and their followers are in high-tension relationship. To make it to a second and third generation, and for that movement to grow, it needs to reduce the tension with the surrounding culture. And so this is tracked, you can track this in almost any religious movement you want to, that it goes from a stronger, a high-tension relationship to a lesser-tension relationship to grow, to gain respectability, to gain adherence, to gain followers, to build buildings, to work with the culture. They need to reduce the tension. The challenge is, is that for the movement to really grow, it goes the next step and it actually becomes indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. And this is when the movement gains political power. This is when the movement gains many adherents and quite a bit of respectability. And everybody likes the, the religious movement. It becomes one with the culture. And so a movement that started with high tension relationship, reduced it to grow, and ultimately gets to a uh, indistinguishable from culture relationship. And then you know what happens? The movement dies. Because there's no reason for the movement anymore. It's the same as the culture around it. And so what we need to do as Christians, be aware of that, as we wrestle with not being in crazy high tension, but there always ought to be a healthy tension between us and our surrounding culture. And when the Christian church takes on too much of the culture, it becomes indistinguishable. Then, like many mainline denominations today, our reason for existence ends. We don't want to go there. We want to maintain a tension with the surrounding culture. Anyway, who joins uh, a new religious movement? Next slide. You know who joins a new religious movement? You do. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, we put, put the mirror in front of us. It'd be young, educated, 16 to 26 is the prime window. Uh, white people join new religious movements. For the record, African Americans don't. Isn't that interesting? At least in America, African Americans are very unlikely to join any new religious movement. There's a few who do, but proportionally, they just simply don't. But white people do, and Jewish people, Catholic people, are the best targets for new religious movements. So young, educated, broken home, those kinds of factors do come in as well. Um, often people talk about new religious movements brainwashing their followers. Yeah, that's been debunked about 40 years ago. Um, the, the best brainwashing, if brainwashing means that you're able to gain adherence and keep adherence in your religious movement, the best brainwashers are the evangelicals. <laughs> We're the best at actually gaining adherence and keeping adherence, and we don't want to go with brainwashing. So, but there is spiritual deception. We're not arguing that, that, that we're not arguing against demonic spiritual deception in, in new religious movements. We're just saying it's not brainwashing. Uh, the next one, cultural factors. I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm gonna leave this to the handout, but just say a couple things. New religious movements start in times of cultural and societal 
chaos or upheaval and during times of a lot of immigration taking place or movements of people taking place. So when there's a lot of movement taking place within a culture, like the westward expansion in the 1800s, the gold rush era, the immigration from Europe, and all that, that instability in the United States was a fertile ground, and many other things, the Civil War, all kinds of other issues, issues uh, the Industrial Revolution, etc., was a fertile ground for new religious movements to start, and many of them did. Likewise, in the 1960s, next slide, in 1970s, we also had a second wave after, uh, during the, uh, especially during the 60s, or a time of cultural upheaval. Uh, you might not know this, but one of the, the key factors in new religious movements that's talked about is the 1965 Asian Immigration Act was rescinded by President Johnson, and it allowed for more of a, flow, a free flow of Asians into the United States, and they came, uh, we came, Asians came, not me, but others who I love, came, and they uh, brought with them world religions. And that whenever a world religion from people from another country with a world religion come into another country that has a different world religion and worldview, well, they're syncretized and they create new religious movements out of it. That's what often happens. Okay, we want to go on to our topic this morning I want to talk to you about more about, and that is uh, modern paganism. It's a new religious movement, and so let me talk to you about what modern paganism is. The word pagan uh, means simply a peasant, a hick, a country forest dweller uh, in its origins. In popular Christian usage, it, uh, it, it describes an unschooled, crude kind of person. Uh, modern Paganism or paganism or neo-paganism are umbrella terms to describe a group of new religious movements influenced by pre-modern European paganism, the occult, magical traditions, feminism, and nature religions. That was more of a formal definition. Um, Wicca, witchcraft, the craft, nature religion, um, earth religions, the occult are just several terms that are used to describe a religion that honors an earth-based goddess or god, modern paganism seeks to discover oneself by getting in sync or in rhythm or in tune with this earth goddess. And um, modern paganism is open to anybody. Uh, it's very inclusive. It claims to be the oldest religion and predating uh, Hinduism or any of the Abrahamic traditions. That brings us to the next slide, history, or next point, history of paganism. Um, pagans uh, I'm going to give them a tip of the hat. I believe it's a 20th, 20th century movement, but I'll give, you, give the history as they would see their history. So they would see their history as modern pagans believe that they are the oldest religion in the world. They predate Jews, Egyptians, and Babylonians, and they go back to at least 20,000 B.C. in their, their thinking, they, uh, where people honored the spirits in the air and nature and water and earth and in the birds and animals and trees and stars and the Stone Age religion, you could say. Skipping way ahead to medieval times, witches were persecuted during the Inquisition and obviously during the Salem witch trials. The modern pagans see their, get this now, spiritual lineage with these two groups, okay? No, they know there's not an actual lineage, but they identify with a spiritual lineage is how they do it. In the 19th century, there were many occult groups and uh, the Golden Order, the Golden Dawn with Aleister Crowley, uh, theosophy, uh, for, these were forerunners of modern paganism. In the 20th century is when we really get to what we think of today as modern paganism as a movement, as an identifiable 
new religious movement we can study. And it started with a guy named Gerald Gardner, who was a civil servant in, in England. Uh, he wrote the famous, his famous book now, Witchcraft Today in 1954. Gardner had spent his career in India, about 30-some years, uh, working with the British government in India, gathered a lot of uh, Eastern ideas, and then came back to England, and to put it quite bluntly, was a dirty old man and a perverted old man, and decided to take the Indian ideas he'd found in his perversions, which I won't describe, and begin a, a movement called witchcraft, or Wicca. He named it Wicca with one C, and uh, that's how it's usually uh, uh, taught. It, typically today, most people most would add a second C. Um, the movement came to the United States in the 50s and 60s, especially under Ray and Rosemary uh, Buckland and others, and uh, there's many other um, Wiccan groups. <clears throat> 21st century, continuing our history, uh, estimates range that today there's between one and five million, that's quite a bit of uncertainty, isn't it? Between one and five million of, uh, I don't count them, other people count them, and that's what they say, uh, one to five million uh, Wiccans in the United States. Uh, pagans tend to be middle class, very well educated, and live in urban or suburban areas on the west and east coasts and the Twin Cities and the Twin Cities. We're like number three or four in anybody's count for pagans. We are rich in pagans in the Twin Cities area. Isn't that great? It's encouraging. Um, there are more people to reach out to with the gospel. We want to love them. I'm going to tell you why we want to love them in just a minute. Um, pagans connect over the internet, and uh, they obviously meet in covens, as you might know that term, and they meet through a lot of festivals. Festivals are an essential part of pagan gatherings together. Uh, today, the Twin Cities... Um, my friend John Mayer has estimated that there's, a few years ago, he estimated the number of 20,000 ordained witches in the Twin Cities area, and today he might even place the number at 35 or 40,000. That would be the size, ready for this, ready for this, listen. That's like taking all the free church believers in the Twin Cities area and all the Alliance church believers in the Twin Cities area. He's saying there's more witches in the Twin Cities than people attending Alliance and free churches put together. Over 300 covens that John Myers tracked in the Twin Cities area. The largest publishing house in the world for paganism is near my house in Woodbury, Minnesota. I live in Egan, just next door in Woodbury, Llewellyn Prest. It's, a, it's quite a movement, and it's growing. Many say that it's the fastest-growing religious movement in the United States. That's, that needs a little small caveat next to it that percentages uh, always play into those kinds of statements. And you can start really small, have a lot of growth. You can grow from 2 to 20 and be the fastest growing movement, right? Okay, so that's, that's got to be taken into account. At the same time, they are growing very rapidly. Nobody doubts that. In fact, um, according to John Mayer, they're probably the third or fourth largest religious movement in the Twin Cities metropolitan area. He'd say it's Christianity, Islam, Buddhist, Hinduism, and pagans. We be next in line. So it's a big movement, in the, just in our Twin Cities. Um, so what is a witch? Let's do some terminology. So the terminology of paganism, how am I doing? Great, good timing. So a witch um, refers to a male or female Wiccan practitioner. A Wicca does not use the term warlock. They don't like that. They, they know you're not part of their group if you use that term. They do occasionally like the word wizard. Some guys prefer wizard over witch. I'm not really sure why, but they like it. Uh, a coven 
is a group of, it's like we would say church, they'd say coven, or we'd say a small group, they'd say coven. Most covens are actually quite small, um, usually anywhere from, you know, single digits to 20, 30 people, but not usually more than that. Most covens are actually quite small. They like it that way. All witches, or virtually all witches, all witches is too strong, but virtually all witches are what we would call solo practitioners. They prefer going it alone. As part of the, 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 the mystique of being a witch or a wizard is you do your own thing with great-grandma's traditions from Sweden that you inherited through some secret way, and now you've got it, and you can tell your friends how cool you are that you've got this. And they prefer that solitaire working environment. Magic, spelled just uh, with a K, awkwardly, is uh, controlling the energy of nature. You've heard people say, I'm sending you positive energy. You ever heard somebody say that, like on, on email or Facebook or something? I'm saying, don't say that. That's pagan. <laughs> okay, that's not Christian. We pray for people and ask God to help them. That's what we do as Christians. But as pagans, they send positive energy and they believe in, in karma that it'll come back three times to them. And so that positive energy, that's a Wiccan or modern pagan thought pattern. We don't do that. That's not what we do. We can smile at a friend. We can cheer them up and say, hey, you know, whatever. But we don't send energy like that. But, but magic is a way of controlling energy. Every witch has what they call a book of shadows. That's their private, personal magic book of all their spells. A cauldron. Yes, they still have those. A cauldron that they mix their stuff up in, dump stuff in. The cauldron is symbolic of a womb. So life is being formed in a womb. Life is being formed in a cauldron. And so it's the place where the goddess uh, cooks and there's incense and ritual magic that comes out of the creation of things in the cauldron. Uh, a pentagram is a five-pointed star. It's not satanic in their view. It refers to the earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit is the pentagram. Scrying is a form of divination, looking into a crystal ball or into a cauldron and predicting what's going to come. A wand is used. Ready? Remember that I talked about energy, sending energy? A wand is the instrument that sends the energy and sends it different ways. That's what the wand is for, is to send energy. Uh, the most uncomfortable term on the list that I gave, to, gave you is the word sky-clad. Uh, that means naked. That means we're dressed with the sky. And most witches would practice their craft uh, sky-clad. When they meet in covens, that's a normal thing. So yes, this is uh, connected with, with, what we, with what we might call the fertility cults of the, uh, in, in more ancient times as far as being a naked thing. This really flows out of that perverted guy I talked about, Richard, uh, Gerald Gardner. This is his thing, the nude thing, and it's still pervasive among um, Wiccans today who are generally uh, homosexuals or overwhelmingly fem uh, lesbians. And so that would be our typical witch. Wiccan beliefs, just a few things here. Uh, three I want to mention. Their main thing, this isn't part of the three, but their main thing is to live in harmony with nature and in harmony with everyone around them. They mean no harm, and they really mean that. They mean no harm. They just want to live peaceful, quiet lives would be their way of thinking of it, okay? Um, so they believe in three essential things. First is karma. If they send out a good spell or good energy to somebody, they believe they'll receive three times that back good to them. Conversely, 
they're terrified at this thought, that's why we need to understand this, that if they send out a bad spell or bad energy, they believe they'll receive three times that bad back. And so when you think about witches, if you think, oh, they're sending all these negative spells, no. No, no Wiccan, no witch would want to send negative spells because they're terrified of what they get back. They want to do positive white magic, they might want to call it. They want to do positive magic. Uh, the ancient reed, as it's often called, R-E-D-E, is an ancient word for advice. And uh, the simple advice put in nice uh, King James-ish kind of language by Gardner. And it harmed none, do what you will. That's kind of like the golden rule of Wicca. And it harmed none, do what you will. And so it's a very peace-loving, uh, libertarian kind of movement. Um, Wiccans, uh, it's debated among Wiccans whether they're monotheist, polytheist, or pantheist. And uh, it depends on the Wiccan you're talking to as far as your answer. It definitely does. Uh, but most of them would believe in some form of earth goddess. Think more pantheist than anything else, but they think more earth goddess. Wiccans do not believe in the devil. So... Just, can you just say this real quickly? This is just a funny thing, okay? Just, I'm going to say it. Wiccans don't believe in Satan. Say it. Wiccans don't believe in Satan. So don't tell them they do. They hate that when Christians do that, okay? They don't, they don't worship the devil. They don't even believe in one, okay? They don't believe it at all. It's one of the most common myths out there about witches today is that they worship the devil. They don't believe in the devil, let alone worship him, okay? At least in their minds. Now, we think... I would argue back that this goddess they're following is a demonic spirit. I would argue they're enslaved to the, to the devil and his kingdom, but they don't believe in it themselves. We need to be clear about that. A couple more things about um, magic. Ritual magic, that's the next one. The ritual, yeah. Rituals, just a, a few things. They have um, 13 moon rituals or full moon rituals that they practice during the course of the year. And what they'll do is they'll go out into an open field. This is a traditional thing. Now, in Minnesota in February, this would be done indoors. <laughs> okay. But most places, they like to do this outside. That'd be the way they like to practice it. Okay. So we'll just give them a July evening for, their, for this one. Okay. So in July, what they would do is they go out in the middle of some lonely place. They definitely don't want you or anybody else there. Okay. Because they're going to go nude and they don't want you around. Okay. And so there'll be uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 uh, witches. They'll meet. They'll cast what they call a circle. I'm going to come back to why that's so significant. They cast a circle, a magic circle. They enter it. They, they uh, focus their mind. They call down the quarters of the earth, the earth, the wind, the fire, and water. They call down a deity of their choices. They state their reasons for doing the ritual. They... Uh, work whatever magic and desire that is sending energy. Then they uh, have ritual sex together, often with a high priest and a priestess, or often in a lesbian way. Uh, they partake of, of bread and wine, awkwardly. Um, then they relax and just kind of party and, and hang out together for a while. And at the end, they, uh, they say farewell to the quarters the, of the earth, and they say farewell to the deities, and they take down a circle and they go home typically somewhere in the middle of the morning. Witches have eight Sabbaths that they honor. One of them, of course, is coming up on Halloween. Um, some people often are, are afraid, oh, I'm going to meet a witch on Halloween. Not even close to a chance. 
Uh, you're not going to see a witch on Halloween. You know why? They're out doing what I just said, alone, away from you. They're avoiding you on Halloween. You might see them any other day of the year, but you're not going to see them on Halloween. They're going to go do their own thing. It's like, are Christians going to go out doing, doing evangelism on Christmas Eve? No, we're doing our, one of our favorite services on Christmas Eve and spending time with our family on Christmas Eve. And so witches on Halloween are not worried about you. They're doing their own thing on, uh, on Halloween, just to clear that up. Um, Okay, i got to wrap up a couple thoughts on witnessing. Most Wiccans hate Christians. Let's just say it differently. Virtually every Wiccan hates Christians. I want to say, I really do, all Wiccans hate Christians. Uh, effective witness involves them realizing first that they hate you. They see you, remember that spiritual lineage they see to the sending witch trials? They see you with a spiritual lineage to the people doing the witch trials. And they don't like that, so they hate you. Um, they, uh, effective witness involves respect to them, not misrepresenting their beliefs and clarifying our Christian beliefs and having relational love. Uh, I need to say this, now you need to hear me. I know I'm at the last two minutes here. Wiccans are wounded people. Studies have shown, uh, Wiccan studies, internal studies, have shown somewhere between 80 to 90% of women in Wicca were sexually abused as a child. Ponder what I just said. 80 to 90%, this is like dissertation stuff, okay? 80 to 90% of Wiccans were abused as a child. That's crazy, you know, it's like 70% of men in Wicca were abused as a child. So in other words, virtually every witch you talk to or person who's in Wicca that you talk to was abused. These are a bunch of wounded people. They cast the circle, what happens there? Safety. Do you see it happening? These are wounded people trying to find a safe place where they can be with some of their other wounded friends and find healing from the goddess of the moon. It's really kind of a freaky thing if you look at them as wounded people. So when I see Wiccans, I don't see some weird witch walking around trying to like cast spells at me, although maybe I should be wiser, but that's not what I see. I see a wounded person who is trying to survive the best they can in their woundedness in their adult life, who desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus to free them. And they think that I'm out to oppress them and hurt them and persecute them. So you know what I need to do? I need to love them and not make stuff up about them and not freak out about them. And I want to encourage you to do exactly the same thing as you talk to somebody, some of the 30,000 Wiccans in the Twin Cities. By the way, I know of no effective ministry reaching Wiccans today in the Twin Cities or anywhere in the United States. They're a lost group. We need to get the gospel to them. Let me pray with us. Would you stand as I pray? Now, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that uh, you, by your sovereign grace, would enable very carefully and very wisely, with great care, understanding all the uh, incredible uh, landmines that are here, God. I still pray that you'd raise up some people from this room to go reach some Wiccans with the gospel of Jesus. I pray that you'd enable them, help them to be wise. And God, I pray that you'd help them to just be uh, filled with your love and your grace. Help us, Lord, to care about all the people lost and snared by Satan's schemings and cults and religious movements around the world. Help us to be tenacious with the gospel of freedom and love and grace. And we ask this in the name of our freer, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.